Pontifax is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Hi there, everyone. I'm Jason. And I'm Laura. And our podcast is called Come Back a Star, a movie award podcast. We're watching every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onward. Every week, we review a new film, summarizing the plot and providing thoughtful and insightful commentary. Like how a man chasing a piglet improves any movie. And how many biplanes is too many biplanes? After our review, we rate the movies based on their acting, writing, and cinematography, along with a few bonus rounds. Then, after the dust has settled and the totally objective scores are tallied up, we decide whether or not we'll nominate the movie for our own Notsker, a movie award podcast movie award for movies. We hope you'll join us on this amazing journey through cinematic history. Please check out Come Back a Star with new episodes every Thursday. Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 87, Pope John the Sixth. Doo doo doo. It's another John. It is. Uh, Are you ready for me? I do have a sticker in that spot. Perfect. Perfect. All right. So, I mean, if you're new to this show, because maybe we're going to see an influx of listeners soon, when we get to a John, because it is the most popular name. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Why'd you do that to me? I was drinking and it hurt. Well, I mean, come on. We are now part of the network of dad puns. So mm-hmm. I it, know. it's a requirement. So we use a D20 to generate a randomized nickname using which book is it from? Uh, it's The Ghosts of Saltmarsh. All right. So I am going to roll two D20s for you. The first is a one. It's kind of on an angle. I had to check. And the second is a two. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, I guess his name is Salty Eye. (laughs) I mean, you kind of want your eyes to be a certain level of salty. And also, I'm glad I'm getting out my poor rolls now because you and I are playing D&D later. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yep. In about an hour. Yeah, this has worked out for everybody, I think, is the way that it's going to go. So Pope John VI, also known as Pope Salty Eye. Not to be confused with Salty Dog. No, although I would rather have a Salty Dog than a Salty Eye, I think. Salty Eye sounds like a condition. (laughs) It does sound like a condition. Well, let's see how he fits it, because he was born... Likely in the 650s in the Greek city of Ephesus, which we have talked about before on this podcast, but we have never had a pope from before. So this is where modern day Izmir is in Turkey, but at the time was a city in Anatolia slash Asia Minor. And we don't actually know his father's name because it doesn't tell us in the Liber Pontificalis. This author slacking a little bit. We don't know much else about his life in Ephesus or in the church, but we do know that Ephesus, like many other areas that we've talked about recently, was subject to raids by the Muslim Caliphate in 650 by the Caliph Muawiyah I. 
And I'm sorry about the pronunciation of that name. I looked it up. I tried to find something. Nothing exists to tell me how to say this name. It was also raided again in 700, so either of these could have caused the same sort of movement that we've seen of other clerics in the area. However, it also seems that John himself was already in Rome by the year 700, so perhaps he migrated to Rome for entirely other reasons. And we know this specifically because in the year 700, John was appointed as a cardinal deacon by Pope Sergius, and since he was elected to be Pope only a year later when Sergius died, we can assume that he'd been in Rome for a while to build up enough of a reputation to actually be elected. And he gets made Pope on October 30th of 701. And right at the beginning of his papacy, John was faced with a complex situation regarding the empire. Because all of a sudden, the exarch from Ravenna showed up and caused all sorts of tension and concern. So this is the exarch Theophylactus, or Theophylact, and he had run into some trouble with the garrison of his city, who basically tried to kill him, so he had fled to Sicily. And when he got to Sicily, it is said that the emperor, Justinian II, no nose, ordered Theophylactus to go to Rome to, quote, cause trouble for the pontiff. So this man is escaping from an assassination attempt. He gets to Sicily, and when he gets there, the emperor tells him, hey, just go stir some up in Rome. So... Either Justinian is still angry at Sergius for resisting the canons of the Quinisex Council and wants to take it out on his successor, or more than likely that order was given before Sergius died and it took that long for Theophylactus to get to Rome from Sicily. So either way, the emperor is sending some payback for the lack of approval of canons from that council we talked about last week. <sighs> You know, they would. They would. He's very, very unhappy that the legate, who was not a legate at all, said, yeah, this is going to be fine with the Pope. And the Pope was like, absolutely not. We didn't send anybody whatsoever. Is he going to take another hundred pounds of gold? <laughs> well, he is going to come and cause some issues, but I don't think he has that level of influence this time. So when he arrives in Rome... He receives a very similar welcome to the last imperial representative that had come to Rome, which had been that protospatharius who had come to arrest Sergius, right? So the people are still incredibly hostile and suspicious that he might be there to cause trouble for the Pope, which he was. And so immediately the militia rose a rabble. Rabble, rabble, rabble. Rabble, rabble. Rabble, rabble, rabble. Exactly. So I quote from the Liber Pontificalis. Knowing that he was coming, the soldiery of the whole of Italy riotously foregathered in this city of Rome, meaning to cause the exarch trouble. So they basically come flooding into the city, where they camp out all around the Lateran and St. Peter's and all of these significant papal sites making a very loud statement that the exarch is not welcome and that anything he tries is going to be met with violence. 
But the new Pope John, he does not want violence. That doesn't look super great for him. So he decides to send a bunch of priests as his representatives to the militia and orders them basically like, hey, calm down a little bit. Let's keep the peace. Do not cause the exarch harm. And at the same time as this is happening, he also sends priests to the exarch and says, hey, don't try to do anything violent because you're going to be outnumbered in every single way. I am currently negotiating to keep you safe. Don't wreck that. And this is not easygoing because the militia are absolutely amped up and ready to go. Because remember last time they did not get to tear that man apart because he hid under the Pope's bed. They're like, no, we're really, really upset about this exarch being here. Let's just kill him. Time for some murder. That's how they're feeling. They are ready for some murder. So they are completely unwilling to back off until the priests offer them payment. So the Pope currently has to bribe the people who are there to protect him not to be so hostile. And even that wasn't good enough for some of them because they demanded that certain members of the Exarch's retinue, who had acted as informants in the past, should be basically held to account because they had caused certain Roman citizens to lose their wealth and their land. So they're like, hey, okay, you want to pay us to be calm? We can do that. But uh, we need those guys specifically who caused us trouble in the past. Back to the Liber Pontificalis. To prevent his being injured, the pontiff interposed himself in person, closed the city gates, sent sacerdotes into the encampment where they had forgathered, and with salutary admonitions pacified their riotous mutiny. But a just punishment for their action was meted out to some suspect individuals who had laid information against certain inhabitants of Rome and had offered the exarch a chance to strip them of what they owned. Because he agrees that some of these people are going to be punished, and because he pays his militia to stay calm, the exarch is able to leave Rome unharmed, but entirely aware that he had just gotten out of Rome by the skin of his teeth. So he wasn't actually able to cause the Pope any ruckus. That's looking pretty good. Does he suddenly die then? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> You're getting the idea that this is going to be a short episode. While this is happening, opportunity struck for another major force in Italy. Someone else has been waiting in the wings for some chaos to happen so that they can come and race in. It's the Lombards. Oh, the Lombards. I forgot they keep existing. Oh, gosh. Oh, they're going to exist for so long. You, mm. Oh, I don't even want to give it away. But yeah, they're going to continue to exist. I just keep forgetting about them. <sighs> they don't excite. Well, I guess um, the best thing I could give you in that context is I will remind you that there is currently still an area of Italy that's called Lombardy. So keep that in mind. There's some Lombards over there. Yeah, there's Lombards for so long. I don't think there's any Lombards in Lombard, so. <laughs> in Lombardy? No, there's a Lombard, Illinois, next to me somewhere. It's terrible. It's it's my least favorite name of all of the oh, Italian it's regions. it's almost literally next to me. Yeah, no, if, 
if I take my child to the high school and drive down the road, I will be in Lombard. He'll be in Lombard. Well, keep your eyes peeled for any very aggressive men. So, these Lombards, they had taken notice of the ongoing tension between the Empire and Rome, and they decide to take advantage of it. Since the Empire is currently preoccupied with the papacy and with other matters in Constantinople, the Lombard Duke of Benevento, Gisulf, decides to attack the imperial-held Italian territory of Campania and take it himself. And take it he did, because without imperial forces to help the local companions, Gisulf was able to take over handfuls of small cities, take massive amounts of captives, and destroy acres and acres and acres of farmland to the point where his army suddenly is sitting about five miles from the walls of Rome, in view of the city, feeling very fat and sassy. So fat, so sassy. So fat, so sassy. Not good for the Pope. This is also not good for the Empire, but, you know, it's extremely not good for Rome and the Pope, who are now looking at this army out there. And and frankly, even though this Roman militia had just been used to make a statement to the Exarch that, hey, you're outnumbered and we will attack you, there's nowhere near enough force for them to try and fight off a Lombard army. And so Pope John, who it is said was deeply distressed at the suffering of the captives, knew that he had to find another way to bring resolution with the Lombards without doing it through the military. And so he used the same strategy that had worked for him in the city. He dispatches several priests into the army camp with as much money as the church could possibly muster under the pretenses of, uh, you know, we're, we're here to ransom all of the captives with all of this money which they did very successfully. But then they also took the opportunity to say, hey, if we give you all of this significant additional bribes, you should leave. Which they also did successfully. So the Lombards, with significantly heavier pockets, just agree to withdraw from the imperial holdings they've just won and go back home. Just bye, okay. I thought they were fighty. Yeah, they, they've just gotten a bunch of money, though, so they're feeling really good about it. So he has now protected the city of Rome from violence erupting within and violence erupting from without and breaking inside. He's getting involved in all of the right ways so far. So he also decides to get involved in a recurring struggle that's popped up a lot lately. It's Wilfred of York! He's back! <laughs> This feisty and troublesome bishop is back for his last visit. Oh no. In 704, Wilfred had once again been deposed from his bishopric and expelled, this time by a council held by Bertwald, the Bishop of Canterbury. And when it was clear that Wilfred had every intention to go back to Rome to appeal this yet again, as he do, the most ardent of his opponents pressed for him to be excommunicated. But nevertheless, Wilfred carries on to Rome, and he asks the Pope to defend his rights as a bishop, while citing the mandates that he'd received from several previous popes by now. 
they had all supported that I should be restored. Please do the same. And John agrees, and he convokes a synod to hear the merits of Wilfred's case. Now, interestingly, it is said that most of the clerics that end up being a part of this synod for Wilfred were Greek-speaking, which is yet another mark of how many Eastern clerics had come into Rome during the instability of the Eastern region. Remember when we talked about Rome not looking so Latin? Yeah. This is a perfect example. So most of the clerics that he has attending this council, this synod, are Greek-speaking. And on a more practical footing, what this means is that Wilfred, who's from England and educated in the traditional Latin of the church, is completely out of the loop. And as Andrew J. Economou puts it, he was bewildered through the synod that was discussing his own case. So he gets to Rome, they're going to have the synod to deal directly with him, and the entire time that it's happening and all of the debates and all of the investigation, he can't understand a word of it. Oh no. That would be incredibly nerve-wracking. But in the end, the bishops and the pope agreed that Wilfred should be sent back and restored to his see on a papal mandate. So John also took the advantage of now having a messenger who could play envoy for him, and also sent a letter for King Ethelred of Mercia, whom Wilfred had stayed with for part of his exile, and a pallium to be presented to the Archbishop of Canterbury, when Wilfred presented his letters restoring him. Now let's not forget that the Archbishop of Canterbury is the one who deposed Wilfred. So he's now going to show up with letters saying that he's been reinstated and a pallium for him from the Pope. So it's going to be very difficult for the Archbishop to deny Wilfred his bishopric, because then he'd also have to deny that he's earned a pallium from the Pope. He wants that pallium, so he's going to have to deal with Wilfred. And as such, Wilfred was restored for the final time and actually able to be a bishop for about five years before he died in 709. So it also ends very Athanasius, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So just to wrap up at the end, Pope Salty Eye also contributed to a fair bit of construction and decoration in the churches of Rome, expanding the Basilica of St. Andrew and providing new finery for San Marco and what was referred to as diaphanous white veils for inside of St. Paul's. And then he died on January 11th, 705, peacefully of natural causes. So peacefully. So peaceful. It even says peacefully in the sources that I read, which is not something we generally see. Usually when I tell you it's natural causes, it's because nothing else is listed. This actually just says he died peacefully of natural causes. It's kind of nice. I'm glad he had a peaceful death, I guess. He was buried at St. Peter's. His tomb was destroyed for new St. Peter's, and no epitaph survives. So now, it is time to rate Pope Salty Eye. Ah, what a terrible thing to have. Well, that's what happens when you roll a critical fail and a two. Papatum infallium. Most of his work, I think, in this episode is going to be in Seculari Impactum. But as far as the church goes, he finally settled things for Wilfred of York. That might be worth a point. Getting Wilfred out is a good point. 
honestly. Normally, in a situation like this, you and I might split a one for him, but I'm going to give him a one all my lonesome, because not only did he restore Wilfred, this time it actually stuck, and nobody else deposed him in the process. That'll give him, unless you want to give him any more points, that'll give him a two for Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. Nothing. Nothing at all. Big ol' goose egg zero. Maybe half a point for distracting the Exarch long enough for the Lombards to roll up and demand cash. Okay, sure, if we thought he was doing it intentionally, we could give him a half point for that. It's not great for the Pope that that happened. No, you know. Because <laughs> the Pope was the one who had to pay him, not the Exarch. If the Exarch had to pay him, though, that would be beautiful mastery. Do you want to give him that half point? I kind of do, because, like, you know, he had to deal with that. And it was a little dramatic. It was dramatic. It definitely was dramatic. And this is where he's going to score really well as we go into Seculari Impactum. Seculari Impactum. He prevented the Exarch from using violence against the citizens of Rome, but he also prevented the Italian militia and the citizens of Rome from using violence against the Exarch. Ding ding. With his cash. Cash money. <laughs> with his cash money. And then with his cash money, he also convinced the Lombard Duke of Benevento to withdraw from all of this territory that he's literally just won and could probably keep and just go home. Like, he, he avoids a sacking of Rome and he actually wins lands back for the empire by just paying really well. So this is a good category for him. He kept a lot of people safe. I'm leaning towards like a six or a seven, probably. Yeah, I was kind of going around that six mark. And I think that, that that's just about right. So we'll give him a 12 in Seculari Impactum. That boosted his score. <laughs> I uh, he's at least over 12. He is at least over 12. I mean, we could do that every round. Be like, okay, well, he's over one. <laughs> Fossium Sanctus. Well, here he is. What is he doing? Yeah, that is a very intense look. His eh? eyes are salty. <laughs> they are so salty. This is the look that you would give if somebody just told you that the Lombards are now parked outside your door feeling very fat and sassy. At least he lives up to his name. I have to give him a straight 10 for that. I didn't expect it to come around. It came, it definitely came around. I love the intensity of it. So what do you actually want to score him? You want to give him that 10? Give him a 10. He's got salty eyes. I don't. Salty eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if Scarlet agrees. Scarlet, look at his salty eyes. Here to come look at the eyes. Why, why do you think they're, he's salty. <laughs> mm, uh, yes, his eyes are made of salt. <laughs> 
No, salty like you're you're mad at somebody. Oh, well, that makes a lot more uh, sense. I thought you were talking about <laughs> eyes covered in salt, and I was like... No, I'm talking about him glaring into the distance. <laughs> okay, well, that's not how you use the term salty. Salty eyes? No! Don't tell me how to use terms, small teenage... <laughs> you can't use the term Your like frontal that. lobe is not developed enough. Hey, we coined this term. <laughs> you, you can't redefine it on us. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, wrong way to use the term. <laughs> Unacceptable! So you're gonna give him that full-on ten for his salty eyes. I think it's worth... I think it's worth a six. I and you know I try to stay as unbiased as possible, and I really like that he's super intense. But I have looked at some really dumb-looking popes. I lately. just <laughs> think that having named him Salty Eye and then to have him glare into the distance is too uh, advantageous to not give him a ten. All right, I, and I, you know what? You can give him a ten. And what what is going to happen here? Because I want to give him a six is he's going to get a total of four points in this category, which means he's literally only one point away from as much as we could have given him. That, that seems right, because we're going to have some ridiculous-looking popes, but none, like, this is in that range of perfectly fitting, I think. So he will get a four, Facium Sanctus. Tempus Pontificus. October 30th, 701 to January 11th, 7.05, which is three years and two months. And that gives him a score of 0.75. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! He is not a saint. Okay, well, that's not a surprise. No, it's not. But that brings us to his final score, which is a very impressive given everything that he accomplished, a 19.25. Ooh, almost a 20. Almost a 20. <laughs> I mean, most of that is his secular impactum and his salty eyes. <laughs> but now I must ask you, whether you think he is papally enough, pizzazzy enough, with an impact enough for a papal bull? No. There's just no way. It was a fun journey, and I feel like you being currently in 42nd place is very fitting for Pope Salty Eye. Kind of in the middle of the pack there, that's fine. That's fine, yes. But that does not bring us to the end of our episode, because we have a couple thank yous to make. First off, to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for being our inspirations, as always. Huge, huge congratulations to Saga Thing that just hit a million downloads today. Oh my god, right? So many. We also got an email about the Tonshers. I am so excited about how much discourse this has caused in our little papally community. So many people are so excited about the Tonshers and providing information. So I got an email from Zoe, and I'm... I will try your last name, Zoe, but if I butcher it, I am so sorry because it's Siagoris, I think. Hopefully that's okay. Zoe wrote us about the tonsure of St. James, and I'm going to just read her email to you because she provided a great quote. She says, This information comes from the book Ancient European Costume and Fashion by Herbert Norris. Under the title of Costume and Fashion, Volume 1, The Evolution of European Dress Throughout the Early Ages, pages 172 to 173. 
The practice of shaving the head was in use among the Egyptian priests of the early dynasties. It was copied by the Coptic Christians in the form of a tonsure, a round-shaved patch on the top of the head adopted later in the 6th century by the clergy in general as a mark of distinction from the laity. There were two forms of tonsure, that of St. Peter, in which a circle of hair is left by shaving the top of the head and the nape of the neck, was in vogue in Italy, Spain, Gaul, and the early English church. Donut. That's the donut, yes. The other form, that of St. James, used in the early Scottish church, was made by shaving all of the head in front of a line drawn from ear to ear. Mullet. Yeah, mullet one. So we're still, we're learning more and more about the tonsures every day. Now we know that they are now an inspired tradition all the way back from the ancient Egyptians. I love that. Thank you so much, Zoe, for sending that to us. I also want to thank Anna at The Bewitched Reader, who put us in her list of podcasts you need to listen to right now. Very, very cool. That was, that was awesome. And it's a good list. We're in very good company. So thank you very much for that. And with that... We can say thank you and goodbye. Bye.